All right, raise your hand if you need a Bible. If you do have a Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you'll know why I've been asking for your prayers when you look at verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are making our way through 1 Timothy. It's not that I selected this passage at all. Actually, I wanted to avoid it. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow me to do that. It's not something that you pick out of the blue to say you'd like to preach upon. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Randy led us last week through verse 7 in the beginning of verse 8, but we'll carry on not shunning from anything in the truth of God's Word. This says this, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. So moving on to chapter 3. <laughs> the character of leadership. Let's start in verse 1. Yeah, that's what my heart felt this week, huh? It's not, uh, as I mentioned, now you know why you were praying for me. Um, I thought long and hard about this, and uh, I've been praying against the spirit of offense in any way, but years ago, I had a friend share this piece of wisdom with me when he said this, the problem is never the problem. The older I get, and hopefully a little wiser, I'm learning not to be dogmatic about surface problems because it often does cause offense. To be honest, I've failed looking at the letter and not the spirit many times. And if you've been offended by me in any way, I do apologize. I'm glad I got that out of the way. <laughs> I have three points today looking at this passage and if you'd like to talk to me after about them, I will not talk to you. <laughs> okay. Just kidding. We're having fun today, right? You've got to have fun, right? The first one, and something I would argue against in the past that God has changed in my heart, but simply is this, that culture does matter. And I've heard the argument, and I gave it to myself, that culture does not matter, but culture always does matter. Paul in 1 Timothy period addresses some difficulties in the Ephesian church. You might remember two weeks ago we talked about who wrote it, who he wrote it to, and we did a study of the Ephesian church. 
It was begun in Acts chapter 19 with the great revival. We followed it through the book of Ephesians and then to Revelation. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church. We find out rather quickly that the church is out of order in many ways in what it taught. We learned that they had false teachers teaching works and not grace. We learned here in chapter 2 not only... uh, In what we read, but men were out of order too. The church in its service, in its worship, was out of order. In chapter 5, we read very clearly relationships in the church were out of order. And in chapter 6, we learn their concept of money was way out of order too. And so as he's writing, he's correcting them, directing them, bringing them back to truth because they're out of order. They're out of order because... What they're doing is dramatically different than the character of Jesus when how they dealt with money or the idea of grace or how they worshipped. This was nothing new to Paul, and most of his letters had some correction in them. If you know your New Testament, you'll find that out in 1 Corinthians. He spoke to them about division in the church. They were suing one another and fighting with one another. Galatians the gospel of works in terms of circumcision, he had to correct them there. Second Peter, false prophets were in the church. First Thessalonians, incorrect teaching about the coming of Christ. Usually in his letters, he affirms them and he corrects them. There's nothing different here in First Timothy. So it's really important for us to understand what's going on a little deeper in Ephesus to why he would write these things. You see, Ephesus was a city, Rome, Roman city in some ways, but full of Greeks, and it was a city that worshipped the goddess Diana. Maybe you knew this. In Acts 19, very clearly, as we see the whole context of Scripture, they practiced magic and they worshipped this female goddess. Many people made money from this idol worship, it says in Acts 19, and they got really upset because people were turning to Jesus and they couldn't make their little idols It says in Acts 19 as well that the city was stirred up and they shouted and shouted and shouted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This was a big thing in this city. This isn't a little thing. This is a big thing. They screamed and shouted. The people worshipped this goddess. Actually says the city of Ephesus was temple the guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. This is right in Scripture. This is Acts chapter 19. Well, it made me think, who is Diana? I'm not really good at my Greek mythology. I wasn't paying attention in school. But my kids knew more than me because at the dinner table they knew I was attacking this subject. And they said to me, Dad, haven't you ever seen the movie Wonder Woman? I thought, well, I saw the end when you guys were watching it. Also, the Percy Jackson book series that they read. And they almost looked at me with disdain that I didn't know my Greek mythology. Or more important, Roman. Who is this super goddess Diana? I thought to myself. Who is this Wonder Woman (laughs) of sorts? And actually, I did look up in the movie Wonder Woman isn't necessarily from the line of Diana, but kind of from Zeus and the Amazon tribe, but that's why she had special powers. She descended from this great goddess of women. I thought I'd better do my research. 
because I really don't know my superhero movies and I don't know much about Diana. So I went to the internet. Diana is a Roman goddess in Roman religion, a goddess of wild animals and the hunt. Identified with the Greek goddess Artemis, her name is akin to the Latin word diem, sky, and dies, daylight. Like her Greek counterpart, she was also the goddess of domestic animals and a protector and provider of the people. That's what they worshipped. Also, I found out very quickly, Diana was known as the virgin goddess of childbirth and women. She was one of three maiden goddesses along with Merva and Vesta who swore never to get married. And I wrote my notes, girl power. Then my wife, who read my notes, said that she was actually Vesta in her Latin class and dressed up like Vesta. I didn't know anything like even my own marriage. <laughs> Diana was also often considered to be the goddess, a little more detail, associated with fertility and childbirth and the protector of women during labor. This probably arose as an extension of her association with the moon, whose cycles were believed to be parallel to the menstrual cycle, which was used to track the months during pregnancy. At her shrine, Narika worshippers left votive terracotta offerings for the goddess in shapes of babies and wombs, and the temples there were also offered the care of pups and pregnant dogs. This care of infant also extended to the training of both young people and animals, especially for hunting. In her role as protector of childbirth, Diana was called Diana Lucina or Juna Lucina because her dominion overlapped with the goddess Juno. And the title of Juno may also have had an independent origin as it applied to Diana with the literal meaning helper. Diana as Juno Lucina would be the helper during childbirth. And you might say good ninth grade English class, Pastor Dan. But I want to tell you something. If you understand the depth of what's going on, you will understand what Paul is saying and why he is saying it. You also need to know that you can read very clearly or find on the internet that Diana was the goddess of slaves. And Diana's chief priest was a freed slave. So here we have a goddess who the Ephesians worshipped and the city was made up of slaves who would be their protector and help them in the midst of childbirth. Now you might be thinking, that's interesting, but let's think of the passage again and some verses that we don't understand in the context without the understanding of the depth of the knowledge of what's happening. We have a goddess being worshipped. This is the reality of the culture of Ephesus. And if you see a great revival happening, what is happening is people are getting saved. But maybe you know, and maybe yourself, you were saved later in life. And getting some of your ideas to the truth takes a while because you've been trained to think a certain way. And then all of a sudden you, you apply it to your relationship with God. So you have a people who are worshipping a female goddess that helped them in childbirth was their protector. And here they're introduced to Jesus Christ. But things are out of order in the way they think. They're definitely out of order. And not only was their culture 
out of order, but the service of worship was out of order. Men were angry. Do we read that? You should pray lifting, holding hands without what? Anger and doubt. You have angry men. And then you have disruptions in the service. We see very clearly that people are shouting out, and there must have been a woman singular who was shouting out in some capacity to disrupt the service that Paul wants to correct. We know in 1 Corinthians 14.40, Paul says, let all things be done decently in order, whether it's men or women, otherwise there is chaos. And it seems in this church, Paul is telling Timothy, something's not right in your worship service. Men are angry. The ladies are disrupting the service. There's doubting. There's a lack of faith. And he speaks into that. He speaks into the culture of what's going on. He speaks truth to them. It's interesting just for you to know, depends what version of the Bible you read, but when it says a woman should be silent, the Greek word is hushikon, which means quiet. And it's the same word used in chapter 2 as well when it says that men should lead a quiet and peaceable life. And when I look at that in the translations in the Greek, there's definitely a difference between silence and quiet. One has a notion of silence, put my thumb down on you and control you, and quiet is just like, let's stop the disruption. And there is a difference. And you can look up the Greek word and check it out yourself. So basically, we need to calm down with the disruption. We need to put things in order that everyone can learn and grow. People were not listening. Something was wrong. There was disruption. So Paul in his words is not only correcting false, bad, incorrect worship, but he's correcting a belief system that worshipped a woman above everything else, a goddess. And we're not to worship a man or a woman. We're to worship Jesus Christ. Amen. And so that's why he corrects it. The order of the Ephesians, these slaves who were saved and came to know Jesus, they had a woman above everything else because that's what they were taught their whole life. This is the goddess. This is the one who protects us. As I mentioned very clearly, sometimes from our past, false teaching can lead to incorrect behavior. So Paul is just simply saying, here is the order, back to Genesis, but Diana is not at the top. And when you understand that, it gives you a depth for the passage to understand it and not just to look at the surface problem because there was a different problem knowing their culture. And when Paul corrects it, it's for the purpose that they would know truth, that they would be free, and that Diana was not in charge. Now, maybe you've had questions about verse 15, and I do, in context. What do you mean a woman will be saved in childbirth? What about all the women who don't have children? Do they go to hell? Well, look at the context. If Diana was known for being the one that you would worship so that your children would leave when you, live when you were in pregnancy, I think Paul is saying very clearly, she's not going to help you. Women, when you're in childbirth, faith and love are your hope, not the goddess Diana. 
And when you see the context, and it's clear that she was, oh, and by the way, many women died in childbirth in that time. They didn't have hospitals. They didn't have medicine. They didn't have epidurals. They didn't have anything. And so many, many, many children and mothers died. And here in their desperation, they would go to this temple and offer these wombs and little babies and thinking that if I worship Diana and I brought this offering and I did these things, that my child in my womb would survive. And Paul's saying, no, 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 your order's incorrect. Only God can help you. Because we know in context, women aren't saved through having children. They're saved through Jesus Christ. There is no work that saves us. Amen. But if you're in desperation and you're trusting an idol or a false goddess, Paul is saying, that's not how you're going to be saved. He says you're saved through faith in childbearing, meaning having children. Your hope is in Jesus that the child will live. And you look at that context and things come alive. But because of Diana and the worship of Diana, things were out of order. Because the worship service and maybe what they thought they could do, they were screaming and yelling and no one could hear them. And he says, hush, hush, hush. We need to listen. And he sets the order through creation. And we move on. And that's the end of my message. No, because the more I thought of it, the more I wanted to share with you a few things. Because that's just the surface. And we could discuss the surface, and we can fight over the surface, but there's something a little deeper. And these are things that God showed me. Just two things I want to explain to you. What is true leadership? What is true power? Because when I look at this passage, and there's different parts of the church, a lot of times they're arguing, who's in charge? Who's in charge? I want to know who's in charge. Is it the man or the woman? Can the woman? Can the man? Who is the leader and who can be the leader? Seems everybody wants to know. Who can be in charge? I just want to tell you, our society and our culture does not have a correct understanding of authority or leadership. Now hang with me here. Everybody wants to be in charge. Even the disciples. They got their mother, <laughs> James and John. Could you go to Jesus and ask him, can we sit at your right hand? You remember that? And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you willing to go through what I go through? And luckily they were. Because their hearts were right. But I want to tell you something. A deeper issue isn't who's in charge it's what true leadership really is. True leadership empowers. True leadership serves. True leadership sacrifices. True leadership pushes itself down to elevate others. And this is really, really important. Because people want to be leaders because then they can, oh, I can tell people what to do. Jesus never lived like that. Jesus never lived in his power or his strength, but he elevated and empowered those people around him. 
See, he clearly says, the greatest among you is the servant of all. The Gentiles, it says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, they want to lord it over them, exercise authority over them. But I tell you, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first, let him be your slave. If I'm the leader, I'm not the worker. I'm not the slave. Jesus flips it upside round and says, you want to be the leader, you get down. And you push up. You know the line of people who want to be in charge is going to go from this big to this big. Well, I thought when I was in charge, I'd have the power and things would be easier. It doesn't matter who's in charge. If you desire to have biblical leadership in your home or in the church or wherever you are, what you're saying is, I want to make less of myself to make you more. That is truly the deeper issue. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. His sacrifice empowers us. It frees us to be who we are called to be. Unfortunately, the world has an idea of leadership that's completely different. It's an idea of finding identity. It's an idea of being powerful. It's an idea of finally getting the praise I deserve. It's an idea of telling people what to do. That is not Jesus' leadership. Instead of arguing who should be in charge, maybe we should think about being the leaders, men and women, that God has called us to be. Leaders who will empower each other. That our lives would be full of agape love for one another. As we lead, we would hope all things. That we wouldn't keep a record of wrongs. That we would believe all things. That we wouldn't be, should I say, 1 Corinthians 13, not puffed up? Can I say true leadership is not focused on self, but esteems others above itself? That is Jesus' leadership. I want to throw this in because I think it's really important today. It's something God is teaching me in my own marriage, in my own desire to lead. Jesus empowers all people, but I want you to know this, especially women. Jesus empowers women. The Pharisees had made lots of unbiblical rules about women. If you know anything about the Old Testament, there are some laws, but the Pharisees added to those laws. And in the time of Jesus, women couldn't learn, couldn't read. They weren't even allowed, forget about teaching, they couldn't even read the Torah. They couldn't even listen to the teachers of the day. They were repressed and they were put down. They were shamed just because they were women. But I want you to know that Jesus came on the scene and not did he, only did he allow them to learn and to read and to operate in their gifts and serve with him. It's actually amazing that every time the Pharisees were around, he'd do something radical. Just think of Mary sitting at his feet, listening to him, being taught by him. You think, oh, that's a nice story. I should slow down. You know what was radical? No woman was allowed to be taught 
by a rabbi, and here the greatest teacher has her touching his feet and is teaching her and smashing their rules and saying, this will not be anymore. Just think about Mary worshiping him at his feet and touching him. Do you know the Pharisees didn't even in public want their wives to touch them? And here comes Jesus, and they're looking at him, lathering his head with all this oil and his feet, and they're upset, and he's like, bring it on. And she'll be remembered for that. That was not the culture of the day. And he's busting not only the culture here of Diana, do you see in both ways how Jesus is about the word of God is setting things straight when it's out of order either way. So here they're worshiping a woman goddess and he's like, that's not correct order. And then they, the Pharisees, the Jews in the past were repressing women and he's like, that's not the right order. And I'm going to tell you that's not the right order by my actions and by my words. Jesus is always empowering. Again, the problem is never the problem. He sees into our heart. And if you can look at this passage and you only look at this without the context of the truth of who Jesus is and his word, you're going to lose sight of everything you need to know. But then I, you started even thinking more, <laughs> which can be dangerous. <laughs> What is the real heart of the matter? What is the problem? Yeah, true leadership. They're worshiping a woman goddess. They're disrupting the service. He puts them in order. But what I've learned is in my counseling, what I'm learning, when you hear something again, there's always something deeper. Someone might come to me and say, I struggle with alcohol. Alcohol's not the problem. You know that. It's never the problem. There's a deeper-seated problem. It's a medication for something else. So think of the problem of control. Who wants control, men or women? Control is not the problem. Where does control come from? Where's the desire to be in charge? Well, what is a true leader? Where does that, what is the heart of the matter? One thing I've learned over my years is control or leadership or incorrect leadership that controls, what it comes out of is fear. Do you know that? When you see a controlling person, myself included, hopefully I'm getting a little better, forgive me, that was the first paragraph. It comes from fear. And the only way we're set free from fear is by truly knowing the perfect love of Jesus Christ. Whether you come to understand that intellectually or emotionally, it doesn't bother me. Whether you have to sing a song and get goosebumps or whether you can read the passage, it comes to your mind and you know it. You have to come to the understanding of God's perfect love. And when you understand that love, it casts out all fear, as it says in Scripture. And people want control because they have no confidence and they are afraid. You don't have confidence because you don't know you're loved. You can't process that in your mind or you don't feel that in your heart. But when you're not loved, you're afraid. And when you're afraid, you try and control circumstances and people around you to make it safe. Now look at this, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, 
but whether a man or woman, but it's directly to a woman, if she's dressing incorrectly and desiring attention. Why is that? Because she doesn't feel loved. She needs attention in some other way to feel loved. And I throw that in our society, men too. They're wearing tighter jeans than women now. They call them skinny jeans. I don't know. But why? 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 Well, it's the fashion. Why is it the fashion? I'm trying to draw attention to myself because I'm not comfortable with myself. And if I can show you and get some attention, I feel better. But if we're comfortable in Christ, we don't have to do those things, women, men. We don't have to do those things. We can be comfortable in the love of God and we don't have to look the way society wants us to look or we don't have to dress in a way that's inappropriate. Usually in my life, because I go into the high school or other areas and you see, especially I would say young girls dressing so inappropriately, all I hear is a cry for attention and love. Love me. I need love. I need love. And there's only one person who can satisfy that. It's no man, it's no boy, it's Jesus Christ. And so if someone's dressing like that, it's causing a disruption. And I will add, women, because men, unfortunately, look outwardly and not inwardly. That's how we're made, and I apologize for that. But there's good things of that, and there's bad things, and he's addressing the bad thing where women are treated as a piece of meat instead of a person, instead of a heart, instead of someone who needs to be loved. And then it causes this great problem. But what will push that all away is an understanding of God's love, and it casts all this desire for attention and fear away. And you don't have to have attention. You don't have to disrupt because the deeper issue is I'm comfortable in who God made me male or female because I know he loves me. And I'm not more powerful because I'm a male or a woman. I'm powerful because Jesus loves me. And when he loves me, I can serve correctly and sacrifice and serve you instead of desiring your attention. And we get wrapped up, who's in charge? And the people who fight about it most, I know from myself, are very fearful. Men and women. It's been half my life. i got to look at the surf. What does, it, what does it say? What does it say? And God looks at me. Do you know me? Do you love me? And when I do, I can empower my wife. And I can empower my daughters. And I can empower the women who are my friends. There is order. There certainly is order. But what is truly the deeper issue? I'll finish with this. I teach at the high school, as many of you know, the, not only Perth High School, but the Christian High School. I thought I'd shock them a couple of weeks ago. I said, Mr. Shuki, what are we going to learn today? I said, we're going to the Song of Songs, kids. We're going to the Song of Solomon. We saw some mouths drop, some eyes look at me three times. That's a little provocative for teenagers now, isn't it? Don't worry, I skipped chapter five. <laughs> some of them never heard of it. Was this in the Bible? What are you, crazy? This is rated R. 
I'm telling a few people like, whoa, you know, some rabbis wouldn't even teach that because they thought it was too provocative. But I want you to know in the midst of a literal romance that's happening, what I was trying to tell them, you have an amazing picture of a God who loves his bride, the church. His banner over her is love. He brings her to his banqueting table. He praises her. He loves her. It gets a little descriptive. But at the beginning of the book, I want you to know, even though this bride is beautiful and stated as beautiful, it says very clearly that she's struggling with her self-image. She says this, I am dark. My brothers made me work in the field. And I think at that time, the lighter you were, maybe the prettier society saw you, but she was dark and she was unsure. And almost this thought is, how can anybody love me? I'm dark. Now today, the greater tan you have, the more beautiful you are. <laughs> but not then. And you read in chapter 1, her uncertainty. But as you follow that book and you see, she just becomes more and more comfortable in the king's praise and love for her. And how many of us could say, I'm dark, but you, you fill in the blank. My brothers made me work in the field. I'm broken in some way. I'm not as good looking as a male. I just, I don't perform as well. My identity is in all these things. I'm just not good enough. And God says to you today, you're my beloved. Come and fellowship with me. Come to my table and fellowship with me. And at that table, you hear him in your mind and your heart say to you, you are my bride. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. And what I think is amazing is the book progresses. And I heard a commentator say, you hear the Shulmanite, the bride, talk less and less. At the beginning, she's praising the king and talking to the king, but he talks more at the end because there's a comfort and a maturity that she doesn't really need to seek his attention because she's dark anymore. She's comfortable because she knows who she is in the king's eyes. She can submit to the king. She's loved by the king. She's desired by the king. She can give control of her life to the king because she's loved by the king. i tell you this morning, as you know God's love, you don't have to be in charge. There's a comfort. You don't even have to speak that much. You don't have to seek attention because as you're comfortable in him, you are set. You are set free to be who you're called to be in the truth of his order. This morning, I want you to know the deeper issue. God's word is always correct. His order is always correct. But that's not the issue. The issue is he loves you and you can trust him, and you can trust his word. I thought and thought about this. 
I really wanted to set order, but I wanted to empower men, and especially women, to be who God has called you to be. Jesus loves you. And as you submit to him, you will have great joy in who he has made you to be. You don't need attention from any human being. And we need to serve one another, empowering one another for God's glory. Amen? Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your goodness this day. Lord, we don't want to serve anything but you. We don't want to serve our, our understanding. We don't want to serve a goddess named Diana. We don't want to serve a lowercase g god named power or money. We want to serve and worship Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word, Lord. And the whole context of your word. And we can't take one verse out of it and proclaim it without the truth of the whole counsel of what you said. Thank you for Acts 19, which explains what's going on. Thank you for the instruction in 2 Timothy 1. And this morning, most importantly, we're thankful, God, that you love us. And I don't want anyone leaving this place maybe thinking more of the issue than the deeper issue of who God is, what God said, and that God loves you. And maybe this morning you don't know the love of Jesus Christ. And I made a promise to myself this year, every time I preach, I will declare and give opportunity for people to accept God's love. Before we knew Jesus, we were all fearful, desiring attention and control. We were desiring to find glory in what we did. We are trying to find salvation through our works, our good works, but we realize that we're all sinners. We have a sin problem. But the Word of God says clearly that God loved us while we were yet sinners. And he sent his son, knowing that we would be sinners. And he died on the cross, taking our sins, our wrong action. None of us is perfect. None of us is good. We need Jesus. We are sinners. But God has loved us so much that Jesus died for us. And as you believe in that truth, that he died and rose again, that you will be saved spiritually for eternity. Do you believe that this morning? Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you've been to Sunday school, but you've never committed your life to that truth to say, God, I truly believe in you. Not the action of religion, but the truth of Jesus Christ. With all eyes closed and heads bowed, we don't need anyone looking around. But maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Maybe you've never truly committed your life to Christ. Maybe you've had faith, but you've never truly said, Jesus, I believe in you. It's a decision that we make with our heart and we proclaim with our mouth. We are saved. 
I want to give opportunity. I promised the Lord again this year, each time I'd give opportunity. Invitation to the harvest. No one's looking, but if that's you, raise your hand. If you truly want to make a commitment and you never have before. And if there's no one, that's fine. But maybe there's someone. Maybe you've been far from him and you want to turn back to his love. Amen. Anyone else? Yes, praise the Lord. See that hand? It could be just you saying, that's true. I just want to come back to the love of Jesus, his forgiveness. We go astray. We go astray. Praise you, God, Lord. Thank you for your word. May we be encouraged in your truth. May we all be empowered to trust you in what you say and to live our lives fully for your glory. We're going to celebrate what God has done. The communion elements are in the back. The bread and the juice. This is the time to worship, to celebrate our Savior, to say, we can't do it, but you did it. Amen, and I believe in you. So all the junk of last week or last month that you've messed up and you're feeling condemned about, you can say and declare today, I'm free and I'm forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's communion. It's common thoughts about what Christ has done. So the elements are in the back. If you need prayer, there'll be men and women. Maybe you want to confess something or you need encouragement. We'd love to pray for you. But let's worship together now. As Randy sings, quietly, respectfully, just grab those elements, bring them back, and worship God this morning. When he's done, we'll partake together. Let's worship him.